Um, good morning. You're very welcome, especially if you're a visitor or a guest with us this morning. As Neville has said, uh, we're continuing our series in the book of Romans, and that passage uh, that was read for us this morning is where we're looking today. Um, if you recall from the start of this series, what we've learned is that uh, Paul didn't decide just to pen this uh, dense and, and um, detailed book to this church in Rome who didn't really know him, uh, simply because he decided one day he'd like to sit down and write a systematic theology. Paul is hoping that the next phase of his life is going to take him in a gospel mission to Spain and to Western Europe, and Paul is looking for a partner in that mission. And Paul is hoping that this church in Rome will support him, it will be, if you like, a base of operations for him, somewhere that he can come, spend some time with them, but they will then send him onwards to do this gospel work that is burning in his heart. Um, and Paul told us in chapter 1 that he was eager to come to them and he was eager to preach the gospel to them first. And so that is what Paul has started to do and that is where we are this morning. And as I was thinking about these verses that we're coming to over the last few weeks, I came back to an episode that happened a long time ago when I was in primary school, I think probably P6. And uh, I had done something wrong, which I know will be a shock to many of you. Um, I, knowing me as a child, I can't imagine there was any serious criminal activity involved, but I, I did something wrong. I can't remember what it was. But the teacher um, punished the whole class. We were doing arts and crafts or something important. And uh, the teacher stopped it, stopped the fun activity, put the whole class back to their seats, and all because I had done something wrong. And uh, uh, if you like, I remember as a child sitting there feeling the, both the guilt but also the injustice of that, that everyone else in the class was getting punished, everyone else in the class was facing the wrath of the teacher, but none of them had really done anything wrong. And, and last week, as we read in chapter 1, Paul was declaring that the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. And perhaps you hear that sort of a thing and you feel a bit like some of my classmates might have felt in P6. This is very unfair. I haven't done anything wrong. Paul is talking about this group of people whose actions of, of outward immorality, of outward wrongdoing, demonstrated this inward attitude of rebellion, of this deliberate suppressing of the knowledge of God that was within them, the deliberate decision to ignore that, to turn away from it, and to worship created things, not the creator, um, and to ignore God and rebel, and then their outward actions of immorality displayed that. And perhaps you sit here and think, well, I'm not one of those people. I'm not outwardly living an immoral life. This is all a bit unfair. And what we're going to see as we work through our, our passage this morning is that Paul is really at pains to make clear that everybody is in that group. Everybody comes under this umbrella of, of ungodliness and unrighteousness, that nobody gets a pass, nobody gets to escape it. And uh, everyone is facing what Paul calls the wrath of God. Now, as we've thought before, this idea, wrath, it is something that's easily misinterpreted. Often we think of anger as something that's an emotional and a spur-of-the-moment outburst. Something happens and you snap. Or perhaps something that's simmered along in your character and you're an angry person and then it only takes someone to wrong you and your wrath is unleashed, is what we often say. But that is not God's wrath. And it's really important that we get that clear in our heads. 
God's wrath is a fixed and a settled and a rational response of God to the evil, to the wrongdoing, to the idolatry that he sees in the creation and in each of our lives. It's not, not a sudden, unpredictable emotional outburst. It is a settled attitude that God has to evil and immorality and idolatry in our lives. And it is that attitude to, that Paul is talking about, the wrath of God being revealed against this ungodliness, rebellion against God in our lives, and unrighteousness, doing the wrong thing. So, this is where Paul is going in our chapter this morning, and this is where we are going as well. This is Paul's conclusion. None is righteous. No, not one. Nobody is righteous. And Paul is going to declare that no matter who you are, no matter what your circumstance, no matter what you've done, you are not righteous. This idea of righteousness is the idea of being in a right relationship with God, a relationship where both parties are engaged and there's no wrongdoing or no betrayal or nothing that stands between them. And we're, we know all about broken relationships in this life, broken marriages, perhaps broken relationships within our, our wider families, broken friendships or broken work partnerships. And we know that at the bottom of all of those broken relationships, somebody did something. Somebody wronged somebody and the relationship broke down. And that's exactly the same situation that Paul is contending that everyone is in with God. No one is righteous. No one is in a right relationship with God. And so Paul, as we've, we've thought, has, has spent the second half of chapter 1, accusing these people who are openly rebelling against God, openly idolatrous, openly immoral. And he's condemning that attitude of their heart, that worship of something other than God. And you can just imagine the moral, the good living person, sitting in the audience as Paul is doing that, nodding their head vigorously, can't you? And we all can picture the sort of person that that is, can't we? Perhaps an older person, sort of person who enjoys saying, well, I would never have dreamt of doing that. We would never have done the sort of things in our day that people do. Living together before marriage, we would never have done that. We would never behave the way people behave now. Society today, look at it. People do whatever they want. In my day, things were much more upright. There was respect. People behaved honorably. I, I agree with you. These people are behaving terribly, Paul. And Paul turns to them and he says to them directly, you have no excuse. Every one of you who judges, every one of you sitting there in that position, looking at those people I've just talked about and judging them, you have no excuse as well. And Paul's accusation to that moral person is this. He says, while you're sitting there loudly condemning people for failing to keep this moral standard that's so precious to you, you've broken that standard yourself. You've failed to keep that standard yourself. Can't imagine that happening in this country. People who loudly and publicly stand for morality, for family values, who we find out have been anything but moral behind closed doors. Those who are happy to stand up on a Sunday and decry wrongdoing and decry immorality and on a Monday are shoveling the wood pellets into the boiler as fast as they can go. Paul says to everyone holding a placard on the picket line, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself 
because you, the judge, practice the very same things. It's interesting that Paul says that even the act of passing judgment, you are condemning yourself. Francis Schaeffer talked about the invisible tape recorder that's around our neck. And as we go through our lives, every time we pass a judgment on someone, he shouldn't have done that. I can't believe she's done that. Isn't it awful that these people are doing that? The tape recorder records that standard. And someday you'll stand before God and he's simply going to say, let's press play. And then let's look at your life. And this standard that you have been so keen to hold everyone else to, let's see how you matched up to it in your own life. And Paul's accusation here is that none of us, not one of us, will be declared to have passed even our own standard. None of us are going to be made righteous by that. None of us are going to be acquitted. As you pronounce judgment with the measure you use, the Lord Jesus said, it will be measured to you. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And as Paul talks to this moral person, this person who's so keen to sit in judgment, he talks to them about God's judgment. What does God's judgment look like? What does it mean? Well, the first thing he says is, well, this judgment when you come before God is going to be based on your works. He will render each one according to their works. Now, if you're like me, good Protestants that we are, believing that we are saved by faith alone and Christ alone, immediately when we read something like this in our Bibles, if you're like me, your immediate thought is, well, how are we going to get around this one? How, 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 he surely didn't actually mean that. What, how do we weasel our way around this? So what does Paul mean? when he says that when we stand before God, the judgment will be according to our works. Well, I suppose in one sense he's saying to the moral person who's happy to declare things to be wrong, it's not going to be based on what you say. It's not going to be based on how loudly you talk about your standard. Things are going to be based on what you do. Paul isn't contradicting himself. Paul, in chapter 1, said that the righteousness of God being revealed by faith, and he goes on to make the argument that we are saved by grace through faith. That's the tenor of Paul's whole gospel. And he's not contradicting himself. But what Paul's saying is that the evidence of that faith will be clear to be seen. These works that we're going to be judged by are the evidence of the reality within us. They're not the basis of it. Somebody who likes sailing, you might look at their car and you'll see a sticker for the marina and maybe a life jacket and the boot. None of those things make them a sailor, but they're evidence that that's who they are. And so that's what Paul's saying here. Someone who's a believer, someone who's a follower of Jesus Christ, their life will produce fruit that is easy to see. The evidence is going to be very clear. And equally, the evidence is going to be clear if you've decided to live your life self-serving, self-centered, turning away from the truth, turning away from God, that'll produce its own kind of fruit. That will produce its own evidence. And on the basis of these works, that is God's judgment. And that again is in line with what the Lord says in Matthew 7. Every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So the evidence will be clear. God, Paul says, he's going to judge the secrets of men. But the evidence is going to be very plain to be seen. 
There will be those people who are seeking glory and honor and immortality, those who are patient in doing good. That's the evidence of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And equally, there will be those who reject that truth. And Paul says, equally, the evidence of those people will render a judgment that leaves you facing God's wrath and fury. So Paul says the judgment of God is going to be based on works, going to be based on visible evidence, not going to be some secret standard. And secondly, he says it's on a fair standard. He says, yes, you you Jewish people over there, who I'm going to come on to in a minute, uh, you're, you're, you're going to be judged against God's law. But those who have never heard the law aren't going to be judged against that standard. They're going to be judged against the standard that they had, the law that is written in their hearts. And that is what Paul is talking about then when he comes down to verse 14 in chapter 2, when Gentiles who don't have the law still do the things that the law requires. They do good, and their conscience, which sits above that, judges it. So whenever people who have never opened a Bible, never heard God's law, do something wrong, They know often that it is wrong. They know that they have wronged in some way. They feel a guilt. And there is this inner moral standard that is written on the heart of every human being. We are made in the image of God. We are moral creatures. And as we've already thought, the standard of morality that we create in our lives, that we expect from others, that standard will be held against us. And so... It's not perfect, but there is a moral reality in the heart of each human being. And there is a knowledge of good and evil. And there is a knowledge whenever we have crossed that line. Our conscience accuses and excuses. That's what Paul says. And by that standard, even if you've never heard the law, even if you've never opened a Bible, you will be held accountable before God. So there is a fair standard being applied by God. Not some law that you've never heard of. Not some rule that you've never never known. This standard of morality that lives within you and that you are so keen to apply to others, that's what you will be judged by. And that is a universal human truth. There's a novel uh, set in, in early colonial Nigeria called Things Fall Apart. And it, it is the interface of the tribal culture that has existed for generations and the arrival of colonial um, missionaries. And it's a very interesting book, and it, it looks at the, how that inter- affects society and affects different characters. But there's one character, the son of the main character, and he has felt this awful guilt about some of the things that he has been doing in his life long before any, any Christian missionary arrived. He knew in his heart that things that were being done were wrong. And he describes this relief whenever he stops doing them. There is a moral reality that lives in the heart of each human being. And we transgress it. We cross that line. So Paul has has talked to that moral person who's happy to sit in in judgment. And then he turns and goes to talk to an imaginary Jewish person like himself. Someone who might say, well, hold on, Paul. We we don't have just some, some standard that we've cooked up in our own selves and applied to others. We don't have just some rough outline of morality that's scribbled in crayon on our hearts. We have the very law of God. We have the the written down version of God's perfect standard. We have the whole thing. We're not fumbling around in the dark. We know exactly what God expects. We belong to a nation that was entrusted with this generations ago. We have guarded this standard, this law of God. 
We have taught others with it. We are so aware of this standard. And Paul says to that person, well, don't for a minute think that just because you have God's standard that you're safe. All God's standard does is show how far you are from keeping it. It's just a better standard. It's a perfect standard. But all that does is bring, as he says, knowledge of sin. All that does is show you how far you're failing. A few years ago, um, foolishly, I went out with my brother-in-law to try and learn how to hit a golf ball down a fairway. And my brother-in-law is an excellent golfer, really excellent golfer. And so he showed me all that, how to hold the club, etc., etc., and started setting up the balls on the tee, and I started hitting them, and set, hit 10 balls. And probably four of them were pretty good. Four of them went fairly straight and fairly far, and there's a great feeling when you hit it, and you just see it sore. Now, the other six weren't brilliant. And a couple of them actually were completely terrible. The ball rolled away or shot off and hit my wife in the head, things like that. But anyway, I thought, you know, four out of ten is not bad, and the others weren't brilliant, but I'm doing okay here. And then he stepped up. And time after time after time, like second nature, without even thinking about it, those balls just flew straight and true and for miles and miles down the fairway. And I got smaller and smaller and smaller. Because I thought I was doing okay until I saw what excellent looked like. I thought I was doing okay until I saw what the perfect standard was. And while I knew some were okay and some were bad, I had no idea how far short I was coming. And Paul says that's the same with the law. God's standard is there to show you how far short you're coming of it. So let's open it up and let's see how far it's come. Circumcision, he says, for instance. Circumcision is useful. If you keep the law perfectly, every minute of every day for your whole life, you never break it. But if you're breaking the law, circumcision counts for nothing. I have a friend who, uh, who, since we have been driving, has kept a copy of the highway code in his glove compartment. Judge his character as you will. Um, and I suspect the reason he has, he has done this is because he's so keen that if ever someone bumps into him or anything happens, he's going to be able to get the highway code out of the glove compartment, open it up and say, here's the standard, here's where you're wrong. But can you imagine if the police pulled him over and said, excuse me, sir, you know you were doing 35 and a 30, or do you know you didn't signal when you came to the end of that road, or do you know you, you did this or that? How do we think it would go down if he said, oh, I know that? He says, I know the standard. I've got the highway code right here. I've been driving around with it for 10 years. I've read it loads of times. I would say I probably know 90% of it off the top of my head. I know the standard's there. Well, simply having the standard's not enough. That doesn't excuse you. All it does is condemn you in the end. It shows you how far short you've come. And so, so Paul concludes, we have already charged that all Jews and Greeks are under sin. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And this is serious stuff. 
Paul is, is drawing to a conclusion here, his accusation, that every human being who has ever lived, who ever will live, each one of us, everyone we've ever met, everyone who has ever lived in our families for generations before us, all of those people stand under that opening statement in chapter 1 that the wrath of God is being revealed against them. Paul has gathered us all in under that umbrella. Whether you openly reject God and practice sin, whether you're happy to to judge people by your standard of morality, perhaps even if you're a religious person who has been coming to church all your life, Paul says each one of us has nothing to offer, nothing in our defense. Each of us stands before God, and the declaration is that none of us are righteous. None of us are righteous. And perhaps you're sitting here this morning and violently rejecting that in your head, thinking, um, well, I don't believe this book. I don't believe there is a God. I don't believe any of it. Well, you're just like that person in chapter 1, deliberately suppressing what we know to be true. Perhaps you're sitting happy to agree with me for part of the way, but at the bottom of it all, you think you're not bad and you're certainly better than most. Well, Paul has already addressed you as well. You who judge are judged. You have condemned. Perhaps even you sit here, someone who has come to this church all your life, Maybe your family have come to it for several generations. You've got a Bible. You've read your Bible. You know what God abhors and what God desires. Paul has said as well, well, knowing the standard, even having it on your bookshelf is not enough. You too are gathered in and facing God's wrath. Now the saying is the night is darkest before the dawn and the dawn is coming next week. We will read the the first rays of the glorious gospel of hope in Jesus Christ, that even though each of us stands facing God's wrath, there is hope that we will be declared righteous. We can't make ourselves righteous, but we will be declared righteous. And if you're sitting this morning convicted about the fact that you're facing God's wrath, come and speak to me afterwards. I'm not going to make you wait until next week. But for this morning, this is where we stand. We all stand under God's wrath. That is where humans are. And why is Paul spending so much time teaching the Roman church this? Why does he want to emphasize this to the Christians? I'm sure he was hoping that they agreed with him and that they would get off on the same footing. But why is he telling fellow Christians so much about the reality of God's wrath? Well, we have to remember that Paul is looking for partners in his gospel work. Remember in chapter 1, Tim told us Paul is saying to the Roman church, this is me, this is the message Are you with me? Are you in? And I I wonder if you've ever had to work on a project with a partner who wasn't that motivated. Perhaps in university and it's your final year and there's some joint project that you have to do. And you're assigned to do it with a partner who's a straight A student who for two years has been collecting points after points after points. And they've already got the first class degree in the bag. And so really the project that you've got to do with them will doesn't matter one way or another what mark they get. You know, they're, they're, they're safe, if you like. You, on the other hand, need every point you can get. What sort of a partnership do you think that'll be? How motivated do you think your colleague is going to be? Partnership needs not just a shared task, not just a shared vision of what they want to do, but we have to have a shared motivation as well, a shared desire, a shared passion for it. And we're going to see in Romans that Paul feels this deep motivation and passion and conviction to spread the news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is deeply burdened with it. In chapter 8, especially when he talks about his fellow Jews, 
how deeply he cares for them. He would have himself cut off if he could see them reached by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul feels this gospel urgency, this burning urgency to share this message. And so he's looking for partners who are motivated as he is. Trying to get someone to, to change or engage whenever they don't think there's a problem is very difficult. Maybe you're an accountant and you can see one of your clients and they're the way they bill people is awful and the way they invoice and, and keep record of things is an, a total mess and you know that down the line it's going to create a whole load of problems for them. But the person themselves thinks, well, this is no big deal. This is the way I've always done it. This is no big issue. How are you going to make somebody like that change? And so Paul is saying to the Romans here, this is the scope of the problem. This is the scale of the problem that we're facing. This is truly universal. Everyone you meet, your family, your servant, the guy across from you in work, the people in the street or in the shop or anyone, all of them are gathered under God's wrath. They face God's wrath. This is the scale of the issue. And Paul says that to us today as well. This is not just a problem that we can confine to lapsed Protestants in Northern Ireland. This is a problem that affects everyone we ever meet, all of our family, all of our work colleagues, people in Belfast, people in the hills of Afghanistan, people everywhere in between who have ever lived. Paul is saying this is the scale of the problem. No one is righteous. No one is right with God. And I know speaking for myself alone, it is easy to become complacent about that gospel urgency. And Paul is stirring us up with that reality. The need is universal. And perhaps you need to wake up to that need today in your own life. Perhaps you have slept through your life, thinking that coming to church and ticking the odd box is enough, or, or thinking you, you're not the worst person in the world. Perhaps you've never really come to terms with the fact that you face God's wrath. Perhaps each of us as Christians need that prod from Paul, that reminder that this is the scale of the problem that we are facing. Paul also, later on in Romans, is going to gently correct some problems that are there in the church. And we'll see actually some of the types of people that he's dealt with here are causing some of the issues later on. There are divisions, there are, there are splits in the church. There are Jews and Gentiles to a degree. Now imagine what it would be like being in a church where some people are Gentiles and some people are, are from a Jewish background. You can imagine how quickly those who have had the law of God and all of that background and all of that family history would feel very superior to their, their pagan colleagues who've just come in off the street, who've never heard of, of the, the God that their families have worshipped for generations. Paul, in gathering them all under wrath, is actually starting to build unity. He's saying that actually all of us, didn't matter what your starting point was, because your starting point was that you weren't righteous. We're all on a level playing field here. We're all starting from the same position. There's nobody who's a third generation Christian in Paul's mind. Each of us on our own account faces God's wrath, and we need to remember that. What that means is that somewhere like here in the Crescent, we have people who have had family who are believers for three, four, five generations, and we have other people, some of you may be from Asia, and you're the first person in your whole family for generations who have even heard about Jesus Christ. 
And what we're told here is that I don't get to lord it over you. I don't get to swan around because my family have done this for generations and you're a newcomer. Paul is reminding us all that we were all unrighteous. We were all in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that truth, actually, of the wrath of God that Paul has taught here works in our character as well, doesn't it? It stirs up a few things in our character. The first thing it does as a Christian of many years is kills any sort of a pride we might have. Because as we go on in the Christian life and as we live and time passes and we do things and we're involved in Christian things and, and, and we make certain choices about our life based on our love for the Lord Jesus, well, it's very easy as the time passes in our Christian lives to start to think that we're actually not such a bad deal after all. And God was very wise to pick us. God was very wise to say, there's somebody who has potential. And if you like, it was a sort of a down payment that we've repaid with good behavior. So it does us no harm to be reminded by Paul that actually we weren't a good investment. All of us were standing before God's wrath and none of us had any excuse. None of us had any defense. None of us could say, well, actually, here's why I'm okay with you, Lord. Here's why I'm righteous. Here's why I'm just. So it kills pride. It certainly stirs up gratitude as well, doesn't it? Because in the light of that, each of us thinks, as we have sung this morning, Who, O Lord, can save my soul? You alone can heal. And the gratitude that we feel as we're faced with this, that the Lord, in his graciousness, offered us a way out of that situation. So it kills our pride. It stirs our gratitude to the Lord for his love for us. And it starts as well to build an assurance and a confidence that we are saved in our salvation. The series that we're doing is called Confidence in God, and there's no accident of that. Over these first eight chapters, Paul is slowly and steadily building a confidence and an assurance in each of our hearts that we are saved and we cannot be lost and we are secure. And as we work through Romans, Paul is going to build that confidence in each of us as well. But the first step on that road is the reality that actually we didn't have anything to offer. We were facing God's wrath with no excuse. And the reason that's important is because if we think that we maybe were facing God's wrath, but we had a couple of good excuses up our sleeve, well then someday if we lose those excuses, maybe if we lose our good behavior or we lose our good reputation or we we lose whatever it was we were sort of holding out to God and saying, please accept me based on this. Well, if I lose that, will will I lose my salvation? Will I lose my standing with God? The understanding that we had nothing to offer. We were standing before God unrighteous. And it is through his grace that we are brought into righteousness and justification. Is the first step on the road to an assurance of our salvation. And there we go. God's wrath. Of course it does one more thing as well. It asks a question. It asks the question of each of us. Where do we stand? Do you stand facing God's wrath? Which of these three people do you think you are? You're one of them. Where are you standing this morning as you face God? This isn't going to be an unfair judgment. This isn't going to be some sneaky standard. We are facing a righteous God and we have rebelled against him. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we happy to stay there? 
Are we going to avail of the offer of forgiveness and peace and restoration through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you're asking that question this morning, please come and speak to one of us in the church because we would love to talk to you more about it.